Scale Map Nation, one of my favorite things about the Rising Tide Mastermind is a session that we do called a full cup. And a full cup is where we bring a tip or a trick to each other that can really help improve our regular day-to-day. And a few months back, Eric Russo, member of the Mastermind and has been on the podcast several times, he brought to us the Rocket Book. Folks, the Rocket Book is amazing. The Rocket Book allows you to take notes just like you would on any other notebook, but it has a scanning feature that turns what you write into searchable text. It makes your notes able for you to find. This was a game changer for me, and I know it can be a game changer for you. We have an affiliate deal worked out with the Rocketbook folks, so you can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash Rocketbook, and you can receive 15% off your first order of $20 or more. Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. My name is Trace Blackmore. Welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Nation, I am always so happy when I hear from listeners. Of course, we call all of the listeners of our podcast the Scaling Up Nation. And it just warms my heart when somebody says that they listen to this podcast And they've actually done something that has been inspired from this podcast. Let's face it, this job can get very routine. We do things very formulaically, and that can become very boring. In fact, that's how most industrial water treaters get burnout. They don't challenge themselves to think differently. They don't challenge themselves to do something differently. And folks, if you did not know this, well, one, you haven't listened to this podcast, but here's what I'm getting ready to tell you. This is not a boring job. This is a job that can take you wherever you will allow the job to take you. It should never be boring. If it is boring, that is telling you you are doing this job wrong. This is not a wash, rinse, repeat job. This is a job where you can do your work in any fashion you see fit. And sometimes changing up how you do your work allows you to see things differently. Now, if you know all the things that you need to complete when you are servicing an account, why do them in the same order every time? Why take your samples in the same place every time? Why talk to the same people every time? Now, true, there are some people you have to talk to every time that you go there, but I guarantee if you talk to a line worker, you're going to find out more information about the equipment that they are dealing with more than anybody else that you talk to in that plant. So I'm just going to challenge you. The next time you go to an account, go ahead and try to do it a little bit differently. What did you do last time? How can you get the same result, but a little bit different action to get there? And just doing that makes the account a lot more exciting. And then you can start adding things that are value adds to you and your customer. Now, those are things that you may not do each and every time that you are there, 
But when you are there, you do one thing just a little bit different. And then by the end of the year, you've done 12 value adds. And I promise when you have that account review meeting and you talk about all the value added that you have brought to that account, that conversation is going to go a lot easier. You're going to feel a lot more confident about having that conversation because you are bringing extra value and you're having more fun in the process. So challenge yourself to do something different. I know you will appreciate it. Well, Nation, a lot of you are doing something different by checking out all of the different things that we've got going on in our industrial water treatment organization. So within that, we have so many groups and so many conferences. And how are you ever supposed to keep all of those straight? Well, my fine team at Scaling Up H2O is your answer to keeping all of that chaos straight We have hundreds of conferences that are going on over the year. How do you possibly know which one you need to attend and what is happening when? Well, you go to scalinguph2o.com. You go over to our events page and my team has got everything laid out for you so you can find out where you should be spending your time to learn more information and meet new people. So here are a few things that you might want to put on your calendar. May 16th through 19th in Boise, Idaho, the National Pretreatment Workshop is taking place, and this is something where pretreatment professionals might want to take advantage of. So if you are dealing with pretreatment, this is all about pretreatment and how the different technologies are coming out. They have different workshops and training all around pretreatment. To find out more about this event hosted by the National Association of Clean Water Agencies, you can go to ScalingUpH2O.com and go to our events page. Also, the Water Environment Federation and International Water Association is having their Process Engineering Conference June 6th through 9th in Portland, Oregon. This is where innovations in process engineering and design allows people to come together to learn new practice and innovations. This conference will focus on a wide range of topics, including resource recovery, treatment efficacy, efficiency enhancements, as well as improved operation and monitoring tools through the water community. If this sounds like something you want to learn more about, go to scalinguph2o.com and go over to our events page. The American Society for Healthcare Engineering is having their conference August 6th through 9th in San Antonio, Texas. Of course, ASHI is the conference that brings together thousands of healthcare facility professionals to learn about new developments in the field, network with others, and find solutions to their challenges. ASHI's having that again August 6th through 9th in San Antonio, Texas, and we will have all of that information about that conference on our show events page. Nation, I love it when people go to these events and then they write back to us and they let us know that they really got something out of it. And several people said they wouldn't have even known about it had it not been for the Scaling Up H2O podcast. We appreciate information like that. 
we try to put information out there to the Scaling Up Nation, and we are so glad that the Scaling Up Nation is using it. Something else that the Scaling Up Nation is using is the ability to get a little bit smarter each and every week with our friend, James McDonald. Hello and welcome to the Periodic Water Table with James, where we think and learn about water chemistry drop by drop. Please use your week to search online, ask your colleagues, or even pick up a book to learn more about each week's periodic water table topic. If you do, at the end of the year, you'll be 52 water chemistry smarter. So let's raise the water table of knowledge together and get started. Today's topic is orthophosphate. Let's get the basics out of the way first. What's the chemical formula of orthophosphate? Is it an anion or cation? Even more complex is whether it is considered an anodic or cathodic corrosion inhibitor. Which is it? Why are phosphates used in boiler systems? What concentrations of orthophosphate are used in cooling and boiler systems? Can orthophosphate be present in makeup water? If so, why and how could this impact the cooling and boiler systems? How do you test for orthophosphate? Is orthophosphate the same as polyphosphate or organophosphate? How does pH impact the effectiveness of orthophosphate? Does phosphate react with calcium? Remember, knowledge is power, and taking the time to learn more about water chemistry each week will help make you a force to be reckoned with. Be sure to post what you learn to social media and tag it with hashtag watertable23 and hashtag scalinguph2o. I look forward to learning more from you. Why, thank you, James. Always good to have a brand new segment each and every week. And Nation, I have to tell you, James was one of the first people that I collaborated with when I was thinking about starting Scaling Up H2O six years ago. James was a huge support in helping me start the very first episode. And of course, now he's a vital staple of the show helping all of us in the Scaling Up Nation get a little smarter each and every week by challenging what we think we know about things we use each and every day. Well, when it comes to challenges, I love our interview today. And simply put, without water, we do not have a job. Without water, we don't have a life. Today's guest is going to challenge how we do wastewater and as I just alluded to, probably one of the biggest calls to action I have ever heard on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Here's the interview. My lab partner today is Dr. Rakesh Govin. Dr. Rakesh, welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast. How are you today, sir? I'm doing fine. Thank you so much. Well, I want to thank you for your presentation that you gave a few months back in Vancouver for the Association of Water Technologies. And that's what our talk is going to be about today, uh, maybe talking a little bit more about some of the things that you brought to our community. But before we do that, do you mind telling the Scaling Up Nation a bit about yourself? So basically, I am a, pr a professor of chemical engineering at the University of Cincinnati. That's where I'm employed right now. My work has been mainly in chemical engineering and in particular about biological treatment of wastewater. 
So I've been working with the US EPA that is across the street from the University of Cincinnati and doing research and development work on different kinds of wastewater treatment systems and their uh, benefits and uh, disadvantages as well. And that's what your talk was about. So today's going to be about wastewater. And when it comes to wastewater, if we were to look at how the entire world is doing wastewater, what do you have to say about that? Are we doing it right? Are we doing it wrong? What do we need to know? So I think that the majority of wastewater that we are, that's created by in domestic you know, so sources, as well as in industry, it is being treated in a centralized treatment plant. And so what we have is a, a huge network of sewer lines that are under the ground that convey the wastewater from every house, every industry. Typically, it goes into a centralized treatment plant that is uh, treating the water. And once it treats the water, it is then put into a river or into a lake or into a, some kind of a water body that can assimilate that water, that huge quantity of water that we have collected. The problem is that most of the wastewater treatment plants are emitting their treated water into a river that ends up in the ocean, and that ends up making salt water. And this water then never comes back from where it came from. So we are actually depriving the land of the groundwater that is being used to create the wastewater. So with that, is it your proposal that we abandon or, or eventually rebuild centralized plants or, or, or do away with them? So now we're treating it at the location where it's being created? Yes, I think that the future of wastewater treatment is decentralized treatment. That is treat the water in the local area where it's coming from and then essentially put the water back in the ground where it came from. And that is essential that if we don't regenerate the groundwater table, then our grandchildren or great-grandchildren will have no water to live with. And without water, there is no life, there is no population, there is no jobs, there is no economy. And I think that what the world has been doing all this time with the centralized treatment plants and the sewer lines is taking groundwater and putting it into the ocean as salt water and it, the water never comes back. So the groundwater table has been declining on, on the worldwide scale, and there is no coming back. So it is, it is basically the entire world, as far as wastewater is concerned, is driving on a one-way street. And some nations will get to the end of the street sooner than others because they have a higher population density. And, and some nations will take longer time. But it is basically expected that within the next 10 years, next decade that we are living through, we'll see many, many nations run out of water, groundwater table, and essentially then people will have to move. And this is going to generate political instability as well as chaos in many of those countries. Here where I live in Atlanta, Georgia, if you buy an older home, it's got a septic system. And the newer homes, they're all connected to the, the centralized wastewater facility. Did they get it wrong there? Should every system have stayed a septic system? No. So I think that the decentralized approach is the right approach. Uh, if we had taken decentralized, we would have a more reliable system. We would have multiple treatment plants behind every house, essentially, or behind every industry. Uh, we would not have this huge network of sewer lines that are very expensive to maintain. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that Atlanta is going to spend millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, to maintain the old sewer lines that are now broken because of routes penetrating those sewer lines. And that is a budget that no metropolitan sewer authority has right now. So decentralized is the right approach, should have been the right approach. Unfortunately, the septic tank, which is a decentralized system, and that puts the water back in the ground, 
is not capable of treating the water adequately. So it is the, the fact that the septic tank is very primitive. It does not treat the water. It separates the solids only. And then the ground is then given the job. The ground, meaning the soil, is given the job of treating the water. And unfortunately, that soil is unable to treat the water adequately in terms of removing nutrients and pharmaceuticals and other compounds that we have in this water. And that is where the problem comes in. So while decentralized is the future, it is not a septic tank, definitely, because it is not capable but the ground is not capable of treating the water adequately as we are now seeing today in terms of the contaminants and in terms of what we are trying to treat from this water. Can you explain what the ideal decentralized system looks like? The ideal decentralized system would be an advanced treatment system. It could be a biological system. It could be electrochemical system. And it basically will do the job of the centralized treatment, but in a box, in a smaller box. And it will also treat the water to a greater extent than centralized treatment is doing right now. So it'll remove the nutrients to the, to the very low extent so we don't end up with nutrients in nearby water bodies. Right now, for example, in the, in the area, most of the population, by the way, is living in coastal areas. And the septic tanks in coastal areas are contaminating the groundwater. The water that's going in the ground is coming into the bay areas and it is causing algal blooms. So beaches are getting closed because of uh, earth warming and because of nutrients in the in the water is causing the, the emergence of algal blooms that make the water toxic. So this is a problem that we are seeing on a worldwide scale, not just in the US, but all the entire planet in general. And so essentially an idealized, uh, the real decentralized system, an ideal system would be one that is behind the house, that is more advanced than a septic tank, much more advanced than a septic tank. It treats the water completely, it takes all the nutrients, does the biological treatment of the contaminants and the pharmaceuticals, and then essentially puts the water that is now purified and disinfected into the ground where it percolates through the ground. It doesn't get treated there, it just percolates through the ground. So it's hydraulic conductivity rally that we're looking at, and it goes into the groundwater table where then it is available for future generations. So change is hard. Everybody is used to having a centralized plant. What is a plan to move to a more decentralized type of operation? So basically, at least in the U.S., we know that about 25% of the population is currently relying on a septic tank. And I think that as we emerge from the septic tank and go beyond it, we want to see the septic tanks to be replaced by the advanced treatment systems that are able to treat the water adequately and disinfect the water behind the house and put the water back in the ground like, like the septic tank is doing right now. But we're not treating the water by the soil bacteria. We're actually putting the water in the ground to go back to the groundwater table from where the water came. So essentially, we're looking at at least the 25% of the population moving from the septic tank into an advanced treatment systems rather than going down the route of connecting to a sewer line, which is what a lot of cities are trying to do. Because what they will end up doing is they're going to burden future generations with basically a very low level of groundwater, which would be unusable. And number two is that they would put a very expensive proposition in future generations to be able to even repair the sewer lines that are being laid in the ground today. Can you give us any examples where municipalities are using these types of systems? Yes, I think that it is, uh, you know, essentially necessity is the mother invention. So many municipalities that are unable to provide a sewer line connection as the cities are growing and they're growing outwards, 
as suburbia is moving, is growing in this case, many municipalities are unable to connect those houses to sewer lines because they don't have the money to lay more sewer lines and, and to have more treatment plants in this case. So essentially, by de facto, those cities and those towns and those houses are relying on basically either a septic tank or what we are saying is they should not be doing a septic tank, they should be doing more advanced treatment. And so essentially we're seeing already the tilting towards advanced septic tanks behind every house rather than a centralized connection because they can't get a centralized connection. It's costing millions of dollars to extend sewer lines and municipalities have no money and homeowners and builders don't have the money either. So that is a problem. In coastal areas where the groundwater table is pretty high, and it is getting higher and higher as the ground is going in, you know, down. It is basically the sinking of the ground over time because of enroachment, because of earth warming and so forth. Because of all of these things that we are seeing, the use of a septic tank in coastal areas is not effective at all because now the water doesn't go through adequate amount of soil to get treated. So untreated water is ending up in the Bay Area or in the seawater, and that is causing the algal blooms that I mentioned to you. So we're talking about residential systems. Does this change at all when we talk about industry? Well, the industry is just a expansion of the domestic system. We need a more advanced treatment system, maybe treating you know much more water, higher water flow rate, and removing some other elements that may be present in that specific industry wastewater that is not present domestic in domestic wastewater. But other than that, the concept of having a decentralized treatment system that is capable of treating the contaminants in the water is still the same concept. It is basically a decentralized system that the industry has on its premises, and essentially it does the treatment locally. Now, there are two benefits to that. Number one is that the water doesn't have to go in the sewer line. And number two, the company doesn't have to pay money to treat the water, because right now they're paying municipalities in many cases. And number three is that they can reuse the water. So they can essentially recycle the water back to the place that they want to be able to use the water so they can use it for non-portable uses locally in the industry. And that's, that's basically reducing the net consumption of water. What data is available where this is being used and how the water table is responding? Right now, there are not many advanced septic tanks that have been installed so far. One of my companies called NextGen Septic is already doing that. And we are already installing advanced septic tanks behind houses in the Northern Kentucky area. I mean, I'm in Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky is across the river from us. So we are already installing these advanced septic tanks that are going behind houses. Now, you know, the, the question is, is the groundwater table responding? Well, it will eventually respond once many, many houses do the same thing. Right now, the problem we are seeing is that the municipalities and the division of water that is controlling the permitting process in every state in, the, in, the country, in this country and probably around the globe in other areas as well, they are preferring a septic tank over an advanced system. And their logic is that a septic tank has no moving parts. Homeowners don't have to maintain it. You know, if it fails, uh, there's nothing that will fail in a septic tank easily other than, you know, having a hole in the tank. And that doesn't happen very often. So basically, they think that it is a very reliable system that they can uh, basically install and then nobody has to do anything with it. And the homeowner doesn't have to bother with it because the water is going in the ground. It is basically uh, has no moving parts. So that is their logic. But however, it does not treat the water adequately. Now, the advanced septic tanks are running with electrical power. They have pumps, they have blowers, they have moving parts that have to be maintained. 
And if they're not maintained by the homeowner, then eventually those systems will fail. And that's what the municipalities and the division of waters are concerned about, is that they don't have the legal authority to force homeowners to maintain these systems for in, in a way that they keep functioning. But I think the, the, the whole system has to change in the fact that when you buy a car, you have to maintain the car. When you buy a refrigerator, you have to maintain the refrigerator. And I think that that concept of um, having a septic tank and leaving it, having no moving parts, is really not necessary. Division of waters across the country, which are in every state, can basically require homeowners to have a maintenance contract, just like you would like to have a maintenance contract for your car or for your refrigerator or for your heating and cooling system. It is basically an engineered system will have to be maintained. So the logic behind using a septic tank because it's got no moving parts is really not viable logic considering the damage a septic tanks are doing in the environment already. How widely available are these types of systems? There are many companies that are uh, manufacturing advanced septic tanks besides next-gen septic, and those systems are being installed in many places. The general logic from every division of water that I have talked to across the country is that if a septic tank is unacceptable because there's not enough land or the soil doesn't percolate the water adequately, then we will allow an advanced septic. So it's basically the advanced septic tanks are advanced systems, in other words, are only allowed when a septic tank cannot be used or the land is sloping, you cannot have a you know, soil field on a sloping land uh, or in a coastal area where maybe there is the water table is too high and that is you know, happening in majority of coastal areas across the country. Basically, in that case, they're allowing an advanced septic system to go in. But I think that the, the idea of a septic tank being the default system of choice by the division of waters, the very people who permit these systems, is, I think, flawed. So let me ask, uh, say I'm listening to this podcast and I'm building a home and this sounds very interesting to me. I want to do my part. Everything makes sense. And I go apply for a license. What's the likelihood that my local municipality would approve it? So basically, I think the current situation is that the local municipality will say, okay, now why is it that the septic tank cannot be used? You might say, okay, uh, I don't have enough land or the land doesn't percolate the water adequately, or basically it has got too much sand in it, doesn't have enough soil, uh, or there are too many rocks. I mean, things like that. Then the division of water will say, okay, we'll give you a permit for advanced septic system. What I'm saying is that that is flawed logic because I think the advanced septic system should be used even when a septic tank can be applicable because of the fact that it does not treat the water adequately and it does damage to the environment over long term. So that's the whole logic behind it. And the other advantage that builders have or homeowners have is they don't need an acre of land or half an acre of land sitting there as a field that is treating the wastewater because that is land that they can use and other people can be living on the land or they can use the land themselves. It is a wastage of land. And in many countries where the population density is very high, this is not even possible. Where does aeration fit into all of this? So aeration is a very central 
you know, basically step in the treatment process. You know, I mean, the, the, it's a biological treatment system and it needs dissolved oxygen. And we aerate the water to put dissolved oxygen into the water. So as I mentioned earlier, aeration consumes more than 50% of the energy it takes to treat wastewater. Whether centralized or decentralized, doesn't matter. If it's an advanced treatment system, it has aeration system in it. And this is a necessary step in any biological treatment uh, system that you can adopt. Now, if you have an electrochemical treatment, of course, there is no need for aeration at that point, but I'm in, in most of the systems that we are looking at for domestic wastewater are biological treatments, and they require aeration as a as an important step. If I recall from your paper, the size of the bubble matters. Can you speak on that? Yes. So I think that the traditional thinking was that if we have large bubbles, the bubbles would mix the water, which is good for biological treatment. It would actually be good to mix the water as the uh, bacteria is treating the water. But the, the efficiency of oxygen transfer, the amount of oxygen that goes into the water in this case is very small because the surface area is not very large. So people have said, okay, if the large bubble is not good because although it mixes the water, it doesn't have enough efficiency of oxygen transfer, let's go to smaller bubbles. And so they went down to smaller size. I'm talking of smaller bubbles, meaning from three or four millimeter size, they went down to one millimeter size, and those were fine bubble aerations, and they had more surface area. But the efficiency of oxygen transfer from the air to the water, from the bubble to the water, was typically less than five or 6%, right? So this is where the technology of aeration is, was moving. And then people said, well, wow, if, if, the micro, if the fine bubbles are doing that great, why don't we go to even smaller bubbles? And then came the nanobubbles. These are basically sub-micron size, less than one micron in size, as opposed to millimeters that is fine bubble aeration. So they went to very small bubbles. And of course, very small bubbles have very high surface area. I mean, they are thousands of times higher surface area. So people thought, well, that's even better because now these bubbles are going to put oxygen in a more efficient manner. And that was true. The smaller the bubble size, the higher the oxygen transfer efficiency. The problem with nanobubbles is that their buoyancy is negated by the weight. And so they don't rise as normal bubbles rise through the water and they spend hours in the water. The problem with that is that 21% of air is oxygen and 79% is nitrogen. And so the oxygen goes into the water, but the nitrogen basically does nothing for us. It does not help in biological treatment. These bubbles keep in the water for hours and they become nitrogen bubbles. And they are useless. They're occupying space in the reactor and they're doing nothing in terms of biological treatment. So what happens is when you go to nanobubbles, although the efficiency is much higher, Although the bubble spends a much longer time, of course, hours as opposed to seconds, in the case of fine bubble aeration, uh, it's basically not good because it stays in the water too long. And they also have a negative charge on the surface, so they don't merge together into make bigger bubbles, you know. And this negative charge repels the nanobubbles from each other, and they stay in the water, they, they keep moving around. They lower the density of water because when you mix air and water, air is a very low density, about 1,000 times less than water. So the net density goes down as the bubbles stay in the water. And this basically allows the biomass, which is the bacteria now, to become basically denser than the water and air mixture. And so the biomass begins to sink at the bottom. And once the biomass sinks at the bottom, it is not going to do anything for you. It's not in the water. It's not doing the job that it's supposed to be doing. So the cells begin to sink in the water because the bulk density has gone down. The, and the third thing is that the microbubbles, you know, if they do end up 
hitting the biomass, they end up sticking to the biomass, some of the cells of the flocks of the biomass, and they begin to float to the top. So these the active you know, cells that are treat the, the microbial cells that are treating the water either come floating to the top or they sink to the bottom. In either case, they are not effective in biological treatment. So the nanobubbles are not very good. Now we move to the intermediate size, which is about, let's say, 30 to 65 microns. So this is much bigger than the submicron nanobubbles. These are called microbubbles. And the microbubbles have two major advantages. Number one, they also stay in the water for some time. Uh, but they don't stay long enough to become nitrogen bubbles. Number two is that they do coalesce, they do combine because the, the negative charge is much smaller, so they don't repel each other that strongly. And then as they basically combine into bigger bubbles, they rise and leave the system. And that's where the nitrogen goes. It allows the nitrogen to escape from the system because we don't have any use for it. And number three is that they have a high efficiency of oxygen transfer. So all of these benefits accrue in the microbubble regime not in the nanobubbles because they actually prevent biological treatment. As I mentioned, the biomass either floats or sinks, and it does not accrue with the fine bubbles that are millimeters in size. For all of us out there that treat wastewater, what should we be looking for in our plants to determine if the bubbles are the right size? I think it's a method of how you generate the bubbles. The traditional method of bubbling air and water is to have diffusers. And they're typically installed at the bottom of the tank. So you have a tank that is, let's say, 12 feet in depth. And you have these uh, diffusers sitting at the bottom. And they have connecting pipes and so forth. And the blower is then putting air through the diffusers. And that's how the bubbles are being created. The problem with that design is that, number one, the diffusers get fouled over time. They get biological growth. And the efficiency of oxygen absorption now from 6% is going down to 3% and 2%. So only 2% of the air that you are actually bubbling through, 2% of the oxygen in the air that you're bubbling through is basically dissolving in the water. So you're losing efficiency dramatically because of the fouling of the diffusers. Now, if you want to clean the diffusers, you have to empty the tank. So you have millions of gallons of water or you know thousands of gallons of water in a tank 12 feet deep that you have to empty out in order to scrub the diffuser at the bottom. And there are not many one, there's not one diffuser, there are many, many diffusers. So you have a massive job in terms of cleaning the diffusers. And then the whole cycle repeats itself again. They get fouled over time again. So this is not a good method. This is not a good design at all. In fact, the better design would be to create the microbubbles in the water and then have a water recycle going on, take the exit water and put it back in the inlet. And in the process of recycle, introduce the microbubbles. So the microbubbles enter the tank at the beginning from the recycled water. The water recycled helps to mix the tank. So that's a good thing. And the microbubbles are putting dissolved oxygen in the water. So that way you have no submerged diffusers. You don't have the cleaning problem. You don't have the emptying of the tank problem that you have to go through. Your microbubble generating system is outside you know, in the recycle line, it's not in the tank. And basically the microbubbles are then coming back at the inlet uh, through the recycle flow. And so you get the best of the two worlds. You get the mixing of the tank because of the recycle flow. You get the microbubbles staying in the water because they are going to stay longer. They have higher efficiency. You have no diffusers in the tank to clean. At the bottom of the tank, you don't have to empty the tank uh, ever to do any cleaning action. And so all of these benefits from an operating point of view, from a maintenance point of view, accrue with this concept of aeration. So when we're talking about industrial wastewater treatment, we're going to have different items that we're going to have to get rid of that we're just not going to have in residential treatment. How does that differ and will this work? 
yeah, I mean, the treatment system will have to be made more elaborate because we have other contaminants like metals, dissolved metals, for example, like from mining wastewater or from electroplating wastewater. That kind of thing will have more of the toxic metals in it that will have to be removed. But the idea of decentralization has a very important purpose. Right now, industries are spending too much water. They're using too much water. Millions of gallons of water is being used right now by industries. And then they, of course, treat the water locally or in sewer lines or whatever, and the water ends up in the ocean eventually where it becomes salt water. So the same problem applies for industrial wastewater as well because it is a large volume of water. So by treating the water locally and and doing it an adequate job of it, they can reuse the water uh, in the local industry itself. So they can bring the water back in the company. They can reuse it. And by doing that, their net consumption of water is going down. One of the things we have to remember is that fresh water on this planet is running out. The fresh water is running out. It's not going to happen in 100 years. It's going to happen in the next decade. In many of the countries that are highly populated, as I mentioned to you, uh, they're all traveling down a one-way street. They'll reach the end before anybody else does. And that is going to have a major upheaval on this for the population living on this planet. So... The industries need to learn that lesson, and that's a lot of wastewater being used right now. They need to conserve water, and by by treating the water locally, they can reuse the water, and that reduces the net consumption of water. So that should be enough for people to act. Unfortunately, until it affects people's pocketbook, that's when they act. I'm sure when they're looking at separating from a centralized plant to a decentralized plant, it costs them money. What's an ROI that they can expect? I think that the ROI is going to be, uh, you know, highly positive in this case. And and the reason why the return on investment is, is going to be good for decentralized treatment is because by using decentralized treatment, you are getting a much more reliable system in this case. Remember, one of the things, one of the central problems we have with centralized treatment is you're, you're putting all your eggs in one basket, in, essentially. So when that plant is hit by a hurricane or by a tornado or by rising seawater level, then essentially it gets flooded, in other words. When that happens, your entire millions of people with sewer line connections are cannot use their toilets. They cannot generate wastewater because there's no plant at the end that is working in this case. And so when you get natural disasters like earthquakes or rising sea levels or hurricanes or tornadoes, single plant is going to affect millions of people at the same time. By having a decentralized system, you have a much more uh, reliable system at your hands. It's not gonna kick out every house in this case. And so you have a much better chance of responding in that situation than if a centralized treatment plant goes belly up because it has no power or basically it has not is not capable of running. In industry, normally the municipalities require uh, a lot of testing to make sure what is released is what they will accept. And then, of course, there's fines if you exceed that. Having a decentralized plant in the facility, how is that different? So I think that the, the difference is today we have sensors. Uh, we have communication capabilities that we didn't have 10 years ago. And so we can sense contaminants in water real time. We can transmit that information to any authority, uh, not only in the country, but even internationally uh, through websites and so forth. We have that capability now. 
And so we have the capability of checking the water quality and transmitting it to the authorities on a real-time basis. So the idea that, you know, once upon a time we had to take a sample, wait for 10 days for the analysis to come back by the time the water has already gone into the river and is long gone into the ocean by the time, that is not what we have today. So we can, because of reliable sensing and transmission and and communication capabilities, we can have decentralized systems that authorities can check on and they can actually uh, keep a track of what, what every decentralized system is doing, actually, you know. And I think the job of uh, the municipality is not to run a decentralized treatment plant, which is what it is right now. The job of a municipality would be to basically sense the performance of every decentralized plant. So instead of having a, a giant centralized wastewater treatment plant with an expensive collection system, sewer lines that I was talking about, they can have basically a monitoring system that's monitoring the treatment systems from every house and every industry uh, in that local area or in that in that community or whatever, and then basically be able to maintain it for the homeowner. That is a job of the municipalities, not to run a centralized treatment plant at great expense and to maintain the collection system and then have the disadvantage of putting the water in the ocean and the water not coming back and so forth, but actually maintain the decentralized system so homeowners don't have to maybe even maintain the system because they pay a uh, amount of money to the municipality. The municipality makes a living from it. The municipality then is monitoring the system real time at their facility. And then they will send somebody to repair your, your decentralized plan should something happen to it over time because it is, has moving parts. You, know? you have an open mic to tens of thousands of industrial water treaters what do you want to make sure you leave them with from this interview? I think we, I want to leave them with the idea that the technology of wastewater treatment is advanced enough today and the technology of water sensing is advanced enough today to be able to do a very good job on a local level, thereby reducing the rent water consumption. And they should seriously look at reducing the net water consumption because fresh water on the planet is running out. And if fresh water runs out at the location that they are actually, you know, have their plant, their company cannot operate as they are operating right now. So their existence is at stake for them. Their existence is at stake for them. It is not a matter of economics, it's not a matter, it's their very existence because if they don't get the water, they cannot do what they're trying to do right now. They cannot run their process. So. So for them, it is a matter of the very existence. The fact that if they need to exist 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, they have to look at their water consumption and say, well, where is this water going to come from if the water table is no longer available to us? What do we do then? And that is what we want to prevent. I don't think there's ever been a bigger call to action on this show. If somebody wants to learn more about your work and what they should be considering from this interview, where should they go? So I can be found on LinkedIn very easily. I can be found through Google search. I'm an academic. Uh, I have uh, companies that I founded that are providing technology to companies as well as to domestic, you know, householders. In this case, we are, as I said, NextGen Septic is installing these advanced septic systems behind people's houses as we speak right now. So they can find me very easily. And I think that they can contact me and I'll be happy to give them any more details or help them reduce their water consumption uh, in this case as well. We'll be sure to have all of that information on our show notes page. And with your permission, I'm also going to add your uh, white paper on the show notes page for people to research. Yes. Thank you. 
Dr. Rakesh, thank you so much for coming on Scaling Up H2O and sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you so much. Several of you might have met Dr. Rakesh at the recent Association of Water Technologies conference, and you got to love how passionate he is about water and specifically that if we don't change how we do wastewater, we will not have water to waste. And just simple things like retrofitting diffusers to have more appropriately sized bubbles and recycling the water, making the systems more efficient, less waste equals less sludge, and operational costs, those are decreased. So a little bit of investment to do these things, but then the ROI is just so great. And what I love about this is it's challenging the status quo. We're not doing things the same way we've always done them. So whether you're in this area of water treatment or not, you can just see how this touches every part of our lives. And when you think just a little bit differently with how you do things, it makes the job more interesting, but it makes the job better. And who knows, that might be the key to saving millions of gallons of water. And we all know we have the same amount of water on the planet that we did a million years ago, but we are using water way different today. We are using a lot more water, and that water doesn't always come out as clean as when we start with it, and that is the issue. So when we challenge the status quo, and that's what this industry is all about. How do we do things differently? How do we do things better? So I really want to thank Dr. Rakesh for coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. And I really want to thank the members that introduced me to him at the Association of Water Technologies conference in Vancouver. Because members of the Scaling Up Nation are caring about the topics that we are covering on the Scaling Up H2O podcast, I'm meeting all of these great guests. So thank you for continuing to bring me new ideas and new guests and new questions. If you have any or all of those three, please don't keep that to yourself. Go to scalinguph2o.com and go over to our show ideas page, or you can leave us a voicemail and you can tell us exactly what the question is you want us to answer right here on Scaling Up H2O. Nation, I've been talking about the training programs that we have at the Scaling Up H2O Academy, and I want to thank so many people that are learning more about water treatment through the Scaling Up Academy. I'm really enjoying writing those courses and being your instructor on Scaling Up Academy. And it means so much to me when you are letting me know that you're enjoying those courses and you feel like you've got a better core of foundational information so you can go out there and be the best that you can be when you're talking with your customers. So that, of course, can be found at scalinguph2o.com forward slash academy. Once again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash academy. And so many people are signing up for our free CWT course where I go through AWT's uh, booklet on how to get your CWT. And I let you know all the things that you need to do in order to obtain your CWT. All of that is for free. And it's my hope that that is the catalyst that you need to go ahead and take that course 
we'll take the course, but then also schedule the exam. So we've got a 100-question practice exam course. If you like the free course, of course, that's a paid course. And all of that is geared towards giving you confidence to schedule that exam. And I hope when you decide to schedule the exam, you go ahead and hashtag ScalingUpH2O and let us know what that date is. We will all be in support of you when you take that so valuable examination. Now, maybe you're in another field of industrial water treatment and there's another certification that you need to go after. I urge you to do that because when you get those professional certifications, it makes you feel so much more confident about yourself. It allows you to speak differently to your customers because you know you have the backing of that certification and it allows your customer to know you've done more than other people and you have their back because you've done that extra work. So again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash academy. And if you're taking the certified water technologist, we've got all the information that you need right there. Nation, we're also going to have a brand new episode for you next Friday. So in the meantime, I hope you have a great week. See you next Friday, folks.